Hi, I'm Alex Attili. And I'm Sarah Stoffer. And you're listening to Spilling the Tea with CCE. This podcast features fellows at Hofstra University's Center for Civic Engagement as they talk about a wide range of topics from current events to social movements, as well as issues that affect our daily lives. From healthcare to mental health, nothing is off the table. This podcast was created in spring 2020 to continue the conversations we had on campus in a virtual way. And we're so happy to have you here spilling the tea with us. Even though Hofstra's CCE is back to running in-person programming, we had such a positive experience with this podcast that it is now a permanent part of CCE operations. Now, let's spill the tea. Welcome back to Spilling the Tea with CCE. My name is Sinjita, and I'm really excited to be here. The perspective that I'm really bringing to this podcast today is that I'm a sociology major, and I'm also studying disability studies. And a lot of my approach into looking at the economy and society is really informed by how it affects people and society as a whole. Hi, my name is Bella. I'm so excited to be joining my fellow fellows on this episode today. And the unique perspective I'm bringing is my background as a business student, specifically an entrepreneurship student. And you may, listener, be thinking this gives me a certain outlook on the economy, but my values are also really rooted in corporate social responsibility and a deep understanding that businesses truly have the power to influence our world, our society, and our communities. Hi, I'm Lauren, and my unique perspective that I'm bringing today is I'm an economics major, and besides all the math that goes into economics, I've also been studying how to look at economics through different lenses, whether it be historical or through different countries' economic structures. So today, the three of us are going to be talking about capitalism and capitalist structures in the context of modern post-pandemic society. We will reflect on our own personal opinions, as well as discuss information and specific sectors of the economic system that may need to be adjusted based on the current historical and political climate. So I'm so excited to be here, and that is a mouthful to talk about, but it's really important, and I'm excited to get into it. I think one of the first points that we really wanted to make was the fact that economic structures do change, and even though it may be a little bit hard to imagine if you've lived in a current economic system your whole life, and your parents have lived in the same one, and your grandparents, etc., they do adjust based on historical events, and the pandemic is certainly qualified as a historical event. And to add to what Lauren's saying, I mean, throughout the evolution of society and humans, you know, we've gone through so many different economic systems. And I think sometimes we sort of look at the market as this like being that has its own wants and needs and desires. But in reality, it's just us and it's people. And we all have the ability to like change that if it doesn't serve us anymore. And I think sometimes we sort of fall into the trap of forgetting that it is a thing that we made ourselves. I think it's important to remember that. Yes, I mentioned this in another podcast, actually, but I'm reading this book and the author has such a great point that people spend, you know, nine to five, five days a week upholding a system that they're not actually happy in. And sometimes you just sit back and think, why? 
just because that's what we've been taught. I think Lauren makes a really great point of your parents and your parents' parents and the history that you've lived through. But I also think a lot of people are recognizing that the path we're on isn't sustainable anymore in terms of meeting our basic needs, the needs of our planet. A lot of people aren't getting their basic human needs met under our current structure. And that's not a good thing. I definitely think one of the hallmarks of capitalism specifically is that we get so obsessed with the competition and the monotony of it and the routine and it helps capitalism right like if we're so distracted by the everyday pieces of what it means to literally have to work in order to survive because if we don't you might not get your needs met and a lot of people aren't if you're so distracted by that then you don't stop to think is the system itself the problem instead we start blaming each other that oh you know i think there's a popular talking point that you know poor people are poor because it's their fault and it's like well actually have we stopped to think that maybe the economic system we're in is not making it feasible for people who are in lower social classes to get their needs met and i think that's the reason that capitalism is so powerful is that we stop questioning its role and how it plays a role in the social problems we have. Um, and instead, so we just blame each other. And I think that's something that like, not to bring Marx in, but you know, it's something he advocated a lot for that, like, there needs to be this breaking of consciousness, and we need to recognize the role that the social and economic systems play in the problems that we face, that it's not just us and our own experiences. One of my favorite, like, economic fun facts is that the study of economics was was originally referred to as the study of ethics. Like even Aristotle said something along the lines of, it doesn't make any sense to trade money for more money because what can you do with money? So the basis like underlying of capitalism is profit. Like that is the goal always, finding more money, getting more money any way you can. So whether that be busting unions or however you see that fit, I think that this has been discussed forever. It's not a new idea and I think it needs to continually be discussed in this way in politics and stuff like that but I just think the origin of economics was what is ethical and what is sustainable for us and I think that has been lost along the way due to a lot of different things but purposeful intentional things like some of the things you were touching on Sanjita. You guys touched on so many good points, this idea of competition, of profit, of how our education and our values have changed in like these fields of study. I don't even know where to begin. But one really interesting thing is like the increased financialization of our economy. The study of economics changed a lot the more that finance started to be valued in economics. I read another interesting economic fun fact that finance, like this idea of just moving money from one place to another, wasn't considered a value added role in economics until more recently because you're just moving money from one place to the next without actually creating anything that contributes to society. But now today, they're considered really high profile jobs. I just wanted to say, I think it's really interesting and like exciting for me having studied the history of economics like that you bring up the concept of value because I also think it goes to the original point that economic systems do change based on what's going on originally in economics like price and value were two separate ideas when I learned about that I couldn't even like comprehend it because that's just not the structure that I kind of grew up in or like that any of my thinking patterns were modeled in I just think that again it's so interesting how a lot of the time like things in economics and finance have just been equated 
to their monetary value. Um, and that seems to be the problem here that the goal is to get more money for, it seems like larger companies. That seems to really be the goal of capitalism to be the largest company and to get the largest profits. And I kind of think that really goes into like the post pandemic world, because I know that one of the consequences of the pandemic and different things going on and different government influences and stuff like that is there was a hold on rent, like a hold on mortgages in certain areas and certain places and stuff like that. And as much as that is important and beneficial and like was really helpful for people who were losing their job because of the pandemic, etc. Unfortunately, what that resulted in was bigger landlord companies buying up these tiny single owned homes and then what they would do is raise the rent on those people so that the rent after the mortgage hold or the rent hold was so much higher than that they had initially prepared for or that they could financially support and the living situation oftentimes ended up being much worse because again the goal is profit you know you can't be spending money on things that you consider menial even though they're in people's living space if your goal is to get more money I think you're right that the pandemic highlighted or exposed a lot of flaws in, I want to say specifically U.S. capitalism, coming from the perspective of someone that, I don't know, lives in the U.S. People have been pushed to continue going to work. You know, I think about Amazon warehouses with massive, incredibly serious COVID outbreaks, or the fact that our country individualized an issue that for the first time (laughs) we could have gathered around as a nation, we still found a way to push profit and competition despite, you know, an event that could have brought us together. Yeah. And I think that really speaks to the power that capitalism has in our socialization almost, like the, the role that it's playing and the values that America's now kind of holding on to and the way that we push that onto other people to the point where like, we're kind of just forced to accept that we're kind of at the mercy of corporations and businesses and their practices and what the government does. And we just kind of have to take it because we don't have a choice. And I think that that's the biggest part that like, when we're in a system that has gotten to this point, where literally we've commodified everything. We've commodified healthcare, food, water, any basic necessity that you have. And it's nearly impossible to live and to get those needs met unless you're selling your labor and not just selling your labor, but being exploited for it. And so because it's just not possible to live without doing those things, like what choice do workers have other than to just kind of accept whatever conditions they have? And I think it's upsetting that like in the face of a pandemic, which should be something like you said, Bella, like that could have brought us together. That could have been a moment where we we took a step back to realize that this is really harmful and this is affecting a lot of people in really negative ways. Instead of taking that as a moment to change things, it almost feels like we double down on them. And that's what's scary about the state we're in now, the way that we're individualizing everything and blaming people for their circumstances, when in reality, the government, businesses, everyone has a role in in maintaining this. Not to get on a whole other tangent here, but like it's not just, you know, businesses or or people who are in power, but workers have been indoctrinated into what capitalism stands for too. And there's this statistic, and I, I, I don't remember exactly, but it's something like, you know, you're closer to being 
in poverty than you are to making a million dollars. And for some reason, you just have these people all the time who are constantly defending corporations when they do these really inhumane, terrible things. And the idea is that like, I guess, I guess people think that, you know, maybe they could be in a position of power to do that too. And that's like beneficial for them. But I think the main point is that we could have solidarity right now. But instead of that, workers are turning on each other because they're feeding into and projecting these capitalist rhetorical ideas and values onto others. And so we could be caring for each other and helping each other, but instead we're doubling down and blaming people, which is really unfortunate. We've talked a lot about the United States, but also this individualist sentiment, yes, is very prevalent in the United States. However, that combined with the concept of money being the most valuable thing over like people's lives per se. Like I just read something that said Jeff Bezos made $75 billion in 2020 alone. And that was like the beginning of the pandemic. People were losing their jobs, losing their main income makers in their homes, all these different things. And he made $75 billion. So I think that really, for me, highlighted the disparity. But I will say onto like the global scale, I was reading a New York Times article that talked about how Pfizer was very proud of the fact that they developed a vaccine without a government grant, which is technically true. However, since the United States is such a rich country and invested something like $109 million to pre-purchase, to pre-order these vaccines, and a lot of other richer companies kind of participated in that as well. So they did have financial support from these richer countries were then able to get the vaccine. And every single day, I'm extremely thankful that I was able to get the vaccine. However, I'm also frustrated by the fact that variants will continue to show up because the vaccine was not properly distributed based on seeing human life as valuable, but instead seeing the monetary gain that could come from that as valuable. The goal was never, I feel, to fix the problem of the pandemic. The goal was being able to create a consumer solution. And it's upsetting that stuff like healthcare and vaccines on a global scale, as well as just in the country of the United States, has become commodified. I like that word, commodified. It's really interesting that you talk about the growth in Jeff Bezos' wealth, because one of the little statistics that I pulled in advance of this was shared by Dan Price, who is known for setting a pretty high minimum wage for his employees. And he's sort of like this advocate for more equitable business. He reshared this CNBC statistic that billionaire wealth during the time of the pandemic went up 57%. But after inflation, the average worker incurred a 2.4% decrease in their pay. I personally don't even have words to express how frustrating that is. The fact that people are struggling to meet their basic needs and on the complete other end of the spectrum, there are people that have more money than they'll ever know what to do with. And I also think something that's important to consider with that is like CEOs and these people who are millionaires and billionaires, they're not the ones that are being forced to show up to work and risk their lives and potentially get COVID and deal with the consequences of that. And so it's so interesting that like the workers themselves who are at the most risk and not only at the most risk, but have died in huge numbers because of being subjected to that risk with no choice, that they're the ones that are now, like you said, Bella, being paid even less, but CEOs and people who have never had to deal with the consequences of exploitation and profit in the ways that these workers have are benefiting and are, are getting in an even more insulated situation. You know, I, I'm taking a class right now, it's sociology of health. And 
we were talking a lot about how between the bubonic plague and COVID-19, this idea that like rich people are able to kind of go away from the city, just like we saw New York City, you know, emptied at the beginning of the pandemic. They're able to sort of get away from the problem because they have the resources to insulate themselves from it. They're able to work from home. And I'm not saying that work from home is a bad idea. I think it's a great thing, but that it's not equitable. You know, there's only some people who are allowed to work from home. And so you have all these people who are insulated from the problem, but poor people are the ones who are forced to stay and who are forced to deal with the consequences of that and unfortunately are left to die. And it's just so frustrating because like you said, I think Lauren, you were the one we're talking about, like the point of of the vaccines and the point of fixing the problem wasn't really about actually addressing the pandemic or actually addressing the harms, but that it was about making profit and coming up with a solution that would give companies more profit too. And because they have no profit motive to help poor people, why would they? And that's the, the most frustrating part is that value has shifted from people's lives to profit. And it almost seems like it just progressively is getting worse as the pandemic continues. And as we sort of go into the stage of denial that the pandemic is continuing, that we have to get back to work. And there's no excuse, even though that's still a risk for a lot of people. A side effect I also think that I've seen all too often of like capitalism and like the idea of individualist nature is like making people who are in a vulnerable situation financially, turning them into heroes. And that's really frustrating because stuff like this girl's grandma couldn't pay for her chemotherapy, so she set up a lemonade stand. That's not a happy story. Her grandma can't pay for chemotherapy, and this girl has to start working, like, at a young age. And, like, we've seen stories like that all over the place. I see them on Facebook. Those are my main place where I find them. And that was done on a wide scale with frontline workers, whether that be nurses doctors, EMT people, or fast food workers, grocery store cashiers. All these people were turned into heroes. And then there was never any sort of movement to make their jobs easier or to provide them with that monetary gain that they needed. So I think it's also the double standard of our goal is money, but you should just be happy being recognized and being good at your job because that is the height of capitalist propaganda is being good at your job that is what gives you value. And that's not true. People's lives gives them value. Who they are as a people gives them value. And if you don't give them that chance or if they get COVID and then lose their lives because of what's going on, that's wrong. Like that's the only word I can find for it. It's a messed up way to kind of organize a system so that people are again indoctrinated into these beliefs. And I think we saw that a lot on the news and like stuff like that, but they were never provided kind of what is seen as valuable in this society. On that, I also think that stemming out of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of workers begin to try and unionize. I think Starbucks, Amazon are the two big examples that come to mind. So I think the pandemic, as much as it's highlighted the deep-rooted issues in capitalism, it's also mobilized workers to advocate for their needs come together, mobilize. And that's been really exciting and inspiring to see. So sort of this mass exodus from the workplace, that's more corporate America, this mass resignation. But I think it touches on what you're talking about, Lauren, people trying to find their purpose outside of work. And somehow I think the pandemic has initiated that reflection. I also just want to bring in some nuance here because obviously 
I am not the biggest fan of capitalism, but I do need to acknowledge the fact that, you know, throughout history, yes, there have been a lot of advancements that have happened as a result of capitalism. And those are good things. Those advancements are things that have helped our society. But I think the question that I find myself asking is that now that we've gotten to a place where we can effectively feed every person who needs food, we can house every person that needs shelter, we can give every person the resources they need and the necessities they need. Why is it that we're continuing to create this like fake scarcity? Well, I mean, I know why it's for profit, but why do we think that's okay? That's the place where I get stuck. I'm like, yes, advancements are good, but we've advanced to the point now where we can do all this stuff too. So there's no reason for us to continue to let people be in really terrible conditions and suffer and just do nothing about it and throw our hands up and say they should have worked harder. Because in reality, we have the power to change that and we're just not changing it. And that's not okay. And so that's where I kind of stand. But I think the way that capitalism manifests now is unacceptable. And the, the harms that it's doing on people, on people's lives, on their health, on their livelihoods is unacceptable. And I think that we need to recognize that and not perpetuate the capitalist propaganda, if you will, because that's only harming ourselves. And I think it's it's frustrating when we don't recognize that. Totally agree with that point. And I think one of the biggest things that really frustrates me is that for like economic purposes, the United States government continued to buy from different like agrarian sectors of the economy to maintain the prices because like there was just so much of it due to modern technology and stuff like that. And so now they have a bunch of resources. They have a bunch of food. So the concept of food scarcity, it's just simply made up based on what was necessary at that time for the agrarian sector of society. And I think it's important that farmers get paid. I know there's been like a lot of financial insecurity, especially for soybean farmers because of everything going on with Chinese tariffs. Like there's a lot of modern history surrounding farmers' financial situations. However, just housing a bunch of food storing a bunch of food and then not dispensing it when necessary because why what is the reason and i think an argument back to what i'm saying would be well then that would devalue everything else if we're just giving out strawberries that would devalue the strawberries that are in the grocery store however there's a modern economic theory that inflation can be regulated by government intervention. And I know some people get really scared around the thought of government intervention, but the point of a government is to serve its citizens and its people. So if there are solutions that the government can enact, such as increasing the flow of income by sending out like those two COVID checks that some people got that had very weird limiting kind of regulations or like requirements around them. So they were already a little bit unequitable to get by, but also increasing the income inflow and then not allowing companies to raise their prices, inflation, not allowing inflation to happen is something that the government can do. That is in their power. And it's hard, definitely, especially because a lot of the times the people that they will be regulating are people that pay for lobbyists and have the money for lobbyists and stuff like that. But I think it's frustrating that capitalism has integrated itself into the government so far where the point for them is to make more money and not the original point of a government, which is to organize and help civilians. I just have to say something in response to that, because I'm thinking about the way that capitalism has infiltrated itself into our government. And I mean, there's so many examples, but the one that's coming most to mind is this CDC's declaration that, you know, after five days, 
of testing positive for COVID, put on a mask and go back to work and it's fine. Even though there's so much research that supports the fact that after five days, people are still contagious, that, you know, that's really not a good idea. And that really what the motivations behind this are is this huge push to go back to normal and back to serving capitalism and making profit for companies and get out of your house, no more work for home. We got to fill the businesses. So you go outside and buy from the cafes and all the shops. And it's like this huge push. It's so frustrating because it's like the CDC is supposed to be this entity that has people's health in mind and not capitalism. But I think that these types of decisions are really showing us that like there is a role that capitalism is playing in our government. And I think it's frustrating, especially because then you have people who are anti-vaxxers and don't believe in the science behind COVID. And then they'll point to that as like, hey, look, see, the CDC isn't listening to the science after all. Or look, they, they have science now that says that. And so it casts doubt on the legitimacy of governmental organizations and, and departments and stuff. And that's so frustrating because it's like, these are things that are supposed to help people. And we're not helping people anymore. All the kind of goal has become is helping corporations. And that's not okay. I will say also, I think I read something about how that decision from the CDC happened conveniently soon after a conversation with airlines, and I think specifically Delta was named, about how it is bad for business if people have to quarantine for too long. Why is the airlines making decisions? They received a bunch of subsidies from the government. You're fine. People were lucky to receive a little bit of money from the government during the pandemic. You are this big profit company, whatever you are, and you received millions of dollars from the government because people stopped flying for their health because of a pandemic. And you continue to beg for more, more and more money. It's just frustrating again how an airline's need to make more money was valued over people's lives or the spread of COVID, the pandemic. I just want to come in and support Lauren's stance in saying that I did a little research while she was speaking and can confirm NPR reported that the CDC's decision to decrease isolation periods came, she's right, conveniently days after Delta Airlines CEO sent the director of the CDC a letter advocating for a shorter isolation period after they experienced. I think the article describes thousands of cancellations over Christmas weekend, in part because staff were calling out sick with COVID. I can include the link to this article in the description of our podcast episode if you want to read it in full. But the influence of business and the government is shocking. You guys also mentioned lobbying. Businesses will pay big money for former government representatives to become lobbyists because they have personal connections that they can then leverage to influence decision making. Also, how expensive it has become to run for public office, the amount of funding that you need uh, to have a successful campaign. It's become groundbreaking to succeed in a campaign without money from lobbyists or contributions from big business. And I know they did an entire Netflix documentary about, I believe, four women who ran for public office and had a commitment to not accept any money from lobbying. And of the four women that were profiled in that Netflix documentary, only AOC succeeded in actually being elected and beating her incumbent, which I think is is telling. And I also want to comment on not only has capitalism influenced the way our government operates, but also societal norms, expectations, values are all so heavily influenced by capitalist messaging. The idea of an individual carbon footprint was 
promoted by big oil companies. The idea that women have to shave started when Gillette wanted to make more money. When shaving companies realized that they wanted to grow their consumer base, they started targeting women and promoting this idea that women should shave their bodies. So really deeply ingrained societal beliefs now. We're all influenced by the desire for profit. And I want to specifically name BP Oil. That was the company that created the concept of carbon footprint. And now also not only have things like basic necessities and like housing and stuff like that been commodified, so have movements, so have activist movements. Things like environmental protection have now been commodified by the same companies that perpetuated environmental destruction. Places like H&M, who are perpetuators of fast fashion and have 52 different fashion seasons with new clothes every single week to keep up with the internet trends and horrible working conditions, everything H&M perpetuated. And they recently, I think it was two years ago, created a campaign to be more environmentally conscious and changed the fabrics or their process to something that was really long and very convoluted and kind of sounded like it was more environmentally friendly because it was made up of natural ingredients. However, those same natural ingredients still took forever to decompose. So again, nothing is safe. Everything can be commodified in a capitalist society and for it to be then taken from the voices of people, to be taken from people and just placed in this monetary, well, what can we gain from adopting these activist stances? And even like recently to apply to Ukraine and Russia, which is a very recent development, Chanel just posted something saying, like we stand with Ukraine, but are continuing to receive money from the Russian government for certain things, are continuing to do business in Russia. So actions speak louder than words, but sometimes people can also pay to cover their actions as well. So money is influencing everything, even those that are wishing to change the structure because those then get adapted. By the structure themselves. Yeah, and I think this is making me think of this conversation that I had recently with a professor in that same class I was referring to before about the role that education and schools are playing in indoctrinating people with capitalism. And it's scary because it starts so young. And so you have these people who are going to make up the next generation of people in society who potentially will then have the power to change the economic system. But what are we telling them as soon as they start school? We're telling them they're not allowed to miss class or miss school and miss days. And if they do, they get people penalized for it. They have to come to school even if they're sick because you get, if you get too many days of school miss, then you get suspended. You also aren't supposed to question authority. You don't question your teachers, just like you shouldn't question your bosses in the future either. And thinking about COVID, it's dangerous to be in class. It's dangerous to go to school. There's not enough protections in place, but don't question it. You have to go anyway. You have to accept the dangerous conditions. And I think that's so interesting, the way that education is reinforcing those values and preparing people for work, but not just preparing for to be successful, you know, for their own benefit, but giving them the ideal people for capitalism to exploit. And that's so concerning that it starts at such a young age and we just continually reinforce that. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I was talking about it and like, I've written about this in my blog post, but like as a small child, you get all these ideas. You have to be empathetic. You have to share, you have to be kind, all these things. And then eventually there comes a point where like you start being told that that's ridiculous. Like that doesn't help you get ahead. You shouldn't do this. This is better for your, your advancement. So you choose this option. And so we abandon these values. And so people who are involved in education are like, oh, we'll teach the generation so they're better. But 
all we're doing is just reinforcing these harmful ideas again and again and again. So how could we possibly get out of that? You know, like how could the next generation be better if all we're doing is giving them more of the same? As a business student, I have so many opinions on how business students are taught and the values that we are taught. But I think on your point of being sort of taught young about what we should value or what we should think about, from the minute you step into school, you're asked what you want to be when you're older in terms of a career. We have a very career-oriented mindset that is sort of pushed on us. And then when you get into college, you're taught that certain degrees should be valued over others, which is a whole nother conversation. So many business students say, I'm going into studying business because it'll guarantee me a job when I'm out of here. And they're not choosing to pursue their passions in favor of, you know, trying to secure a job. I have two kind of personal anecdotes about that. So at my little sister's preschool graduation, they were asked, what do you want to be when you're older? And she said, hairdresser. And a lot of people laugh. And like, it's just kind of like, even then, you know, like certain things are like, well, you won't get a job. Like I've always wanted to write and people are like, well, you won't get a job. You know, ever since I was little, there is not life without the concept of being financially secure. And the other one is one week when I was home, my brother said something, he's 10 and he's grown up with me. I try and break him out of this, but he said, when I'm older, I want to do legal crime. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, the stock market. And I think that is hilarious. I think that's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And it's so accurate. So I think those were just two personal things that I think one was funny. One really reflected the fact that people are always wanting like four-year-olds to be wanting to make money and they don't they don't care don't put that on them and on top of that i love this thought that i saw about when people don't have to worry about making money anymore they immediately turn to creating art usually when people are looking just to fulfill themselves usually they're creating art so it just doesn't make sense to me why we aren't valuing art and the value that it brings to our society when you want to relax you turn to art creating it, consuming it. And for whatever reason, that's not something that seems to be valued in society. But getting back to this idea of values that are taught to you in business school, I don't think I realized going into a business education, the impact of business education on the real world. The values that were taught to MBA students are actually credited with playing a role in the crisis of 2008. And I have this really big interest, perhaps is maybe the right word, in sort of the history of Michael Porter, who was a really, really influential educator, scholar, strategist in the the 80s, 90s. And it's taught in every single business class. You'll hear his theory, pushing competition. I wrote an entire blog post about this for CCE. They're, you know, decades old and we're still being taught this in business school. And guess what? In 2012, Michael Porter said, my original ideas are not sustainable. Competitive capitalism is not a sustainable future for our economy. And instead, he's advocating for what he calls creating shared value. The role of business should no longer be solely profit-driven mindsets, competition-based mindsets, but instead this collaborative effort to enrich society. And we're not being taught that. We're still being taught this idea of competition that now is outdated. You cannot operate a business in a society that 
isn't here anymore in the society that's been demolished by climate change, demolished by a lack of access to resources. But business education is still programming students to enter the world with this competition mindset, even though that's not the world that we live in anymore or not the world we should live in anymore. I also think like what we're talking about here with this idea that like competition is such a big part of capitalism and it's such a big part of the propaganda that gets pushed on to people that like I've had conversations with family members about this where they argue with me and they're like, well, if competition didn't exist, no one would do anything. You know, there would be no no advancements. No one would have any incentive to do anything. And I think about that. And obviously there are a lot of factors that give people the privilege to choose professions in which they don't necessarily need that to be the way that they get money. You know, they can, they can subsist off of other means. And so they can choose things like art and volunteering and nonprofits. But how do we explain the existence of those things? How do we explain people who choose to work in jobs that they know are not going to pay them a lot, who choose to do things like volunteer, who choose to be artists and creatives? And that's in a society where you can't really live off of that salary. So what would it look like if we had a society where people's basic needs were met, didn't have to worry about working in order to get those needs met and could choose to make those decisions and could choose to pursue professions like art, creative things. And it just makes me think a lot that like that idea is really outdated and it never really was true almost is what I, I'm inclined to believe that there always are people who want to do these things and would do those things if money wasn't a barrier stopping them from doing it. So if we eliminate that barrier, I am 100% certain that we would have people who would still continue to do those jobs and would still, out of just having a passion for them, be involved in all of those parts of society. So this idea that like, if we get rid of capitalism, nobody will do anything. Like, I just don't think that that's true. I, I think we don't, we see that that's not true in society now in jobs where capitalism is not benefiting people who work in them. I also feel like that concept comes from the fact that like in jobs that are, I'll use the phrase soul crushing, the only incentive is money. So people think I wouldn't do my job if I wasn't getting money. Well, okay. The fact that it's driven by exclusively money is speaking to the bigger problem that you're held in by like a threat you're held in by a threat to not have your basic needs met that concept is very like projecting like i would not do my job if i wasn't paid well you can't say the same for everyone else and that's a problem in itself that we all need to address there have been societies that have been socialist where people guess what they continue working and they still have their basic needs met and they still feel valued by businesses and their government. And I think also the other problem here is people not really understanding economic structures. I think when people think of communism, they think of like Stalin. That is a dictatorship, first and foremost. And second of all, it's on you to understand what you're talking about before you talk about it. And I don't know, I just think that's a really frustrating aspect is people, first of all, not understanding what they're talking about and then being upset about something that maybe isn't there. Like, I don't like Stalin either. Fun fact, I think he's a jerk. I'm upset at him. Like, I'm not upset at a specific structure. He's not the only example of a changing economic structure. It's not the end-all be-all theory of communism. And that goes back to education. Don't really learn much about other economic systems or other solutions. And that's purposeful because there are other ones that are more beneficial to the human way of living, to the human condition, and coincide better with how people operate. 
when you're talking about like us not learning about other systems, I think anytime I've been taught about them, it's been through this very specific lens that the U.S. has kind of perpetuated through all of the violence that they've caused around the world, all of the governments that they've removed because they could be communist, all of the propaganda that's been put out. And so it shaped the average American's idea of what communism even is. This is all to say that the United States has played a huge role in demonizing other economic systems because it's a threat to their own. And it's not beneficial for them to have people learn about alternatives. And so there's definitely a role that they're playing in indoctrinating us to believe a certain way and to look at certain things wrong. When I took an economics class in high school, the first day of class, there was a PowerPoint, first slide, capitalism, here are its attributes, communism, here are its attributes, and communism is bad. And that was what my economics teacher told me. And it's like, if that's the first introduction you're getting to what communism even is, how do you expect people to not just look at it as a bad thing and then not even learn anything more about what it means, right? Like we have such a misinformed general population on what alternatives to capitalism even look like. I want to shout out my AP economics teacher in high school. I really appreciated like the lens that he looked at economics through. When we were learning about basic stuff like GDP, he would talk about this doesn't measure the well-being of the society at the time. That was always, always, always a question on our quizzes. What doesn't the GDP measure? To kind of make sure that people understand that monetary gain is not necessarily quality of life or a unit of quality of life. And he also had a sticker on his laptop that said down with fascism. So I got good vibes from him. But I think I've noticed a a pattern where professors and teachers who exercise their lens on economics kind of can see how it applies to things like climate change, how it applies to things like global relations, how it applies to things like developing countries being undermined by other countries like the United States or like England or like all these other big countries that have more money. And I think that's the first step is stretching yourself and stretching your way of thinking to be able to see economics through these different lenses because you'll find a lot there. And I also think it's important to consider like when we talk about, you know, these conversations haven't been had or we need to have more of the conversations that like a lot of the people who have been thinking this way, thinking about this, advocating on these issues are Black people who have been silenced by the government. And I'm thinking about the Black Panthers and I'm thinking about Malcolm X and I'm thinking about Angela Davis and all of these really powerful, amazing thinkers who have written so much and done so much to further ideas that are not capitalist. And the amount of political prisoners that exist that the US government has imprisoned for believing things that are not capitalist and advocating for them. And I think that that's something to consider too, that like in many ways, marginalized people have been talking about this for a long time and have been advocating for this and they've been silenced and not listened to. I mean, highly recommend all of those people I mentioned. All of their writings are so good and really, really great ways to understand what's going on. But I think it's just, it's difficult because it's like a lot of these ideas have been talked about for so long and we're just not listening. And I think this moment with the pandemic, even before the pandemic, like late stage capitalism, where we're at, the the impacts it's having on people, I think this is a moment 
where people can educate themselves and begin to think about this differently and maybe use this as a moment to shift and to think about the world differently. Um, but I just wanted to name that like Black people and other marginalized people have been saying these things for a long time and being largely ignored and silenced intentionally for it. I think we could do a whole podcast on like the last two comments that both of you just said. Another thing that kind of frustrates me is yes, it's really interesting to learn about economics. But I think forcing these rigid academic ways of learning these mm. things that are just around us, I think also creates another distance and creates another line or a boundary that people are not allowed to cross. We can't do this because that's not the way that economics works. We can't do this because it's not the way finance works. I learned that. I think that also it's a little bit pretentious to invalidate people of their feelings of things that they've noticed around them because you learned it in an academic setting. Those are not the same. Real life experience with economics is valid as well because economics is all around us. Finance is all around us. Sociology is all around us. Everything that we're kind of learning about and talking about right now are things that we've experienced or other people have directly experienced. And oftentimes the people who are experiencing those things are marginalized groups. They get like the brunt end of it kind of. And I just think that it's another form of creating those boundaries so that people who aren't directly affected by them don't see it or refuse to see it. And also creating those boundaries so that people who are directly affected by them can't speak on it without being immediately shut down. And that happens with just so many different things. And you can't always turn to statistics or people who wrote in 1970 about things. Things change. Things get different. Economic structures are supposed to be responsive to people, um, not the other way around. So as we prepare to wrap up this episode, do either of you have a message to listeners that they walk away from this podcast sort of holding on to? Form a union wherever you work. It doesn't matter. They used to exist everywhere in the United States. They can do it again. And this is a perfect time to do it. That would be like my number one thing. Unions give workers a lot more power in a capitalist structure. My overall one would be like maybe get rid of the capitalist rigidness. But I think things that we can take control of are forming unions. If you can, I would say do that and don't be afraid. I think my big sort of message is read. And if reading is not accessible, listen, go to places of people who are thinking and, and talking about things that challenge the system and try to learn more about it as much as you can. I situate myself a lot with disability justice and disability justice talks about intersectionality. Like we were just talking about like leading the movement by those who are most impacted by it. And disability justice is explicitly anti-capitalist and it recognizes that people are whole beyond what they can produce in society. And so if that's something that's intriguing and something that maybe, you know, you want to learn more about or think about alternatives to capitalism and alternatives to this sort of rhetoric that we've grown up around, I'd encourage you to look at that. Maybe we can put a link to something in the chat. That's helpful. But I think that just thinking and, and challenging yourself to think beyond what we've been indoctrinated to believe about society and what's true and is unchangeable, challenge that. Don't be complacent with it because it can always change. As we've mentioned throughout this episode, check the description for links to things that we've mentioned. Make sure to follow us on our social medias. Check out our blog. Continue listening to these podcast episodes for more of these conversations. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in continuing the conversation and learning more about Hofstra's Center for Civic Engagement, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Hofstra CCE 
or visit our website at hofstra.edu slash cce. The beautiful music you've heard in this episode was written and composed by Ethan Tauber. This song even features the chords C, C, and E. We hope you join us again to discuss combating more of our world's most pressing challenges. And thank you for helping us spill the tea.